Part of what the Canadian Mountain Network does is try to understand the impact of human activities on mountain ecosystems. And part of mountain ecosystems, of course, are the different types of wildlife that live there. A hesitant doe, an industrious chipmunk, a lumbering bear. As Canadians, these are likely all images we're familiar with and have probably even experienced firsthand. But what happens when human activities conflict with wildlife and vice versa? What might that look like? And how do we actually share increasingly populated mountain spaces? Over the next half hour, it's questions like these that my guests will answer. We'll hear from experienced professionals in parks management, research, and conservation. And we'll hear what they have to say about human-wildlife coexistence. Welcome to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. I'm Blaise Kemner. started as a singing, dancing beaver, yeah, because I was an interpreter out in Kananaskis where we did musical theater. And that was such a huge part of my life was seeing how effective it was to get people excited about nature through theater, through art, and through telling them what's cool about these creatures and what's cool about wildlife. That's Don Carruthers' Den Hode. He has over 25 years of experience in parks management and inclusion. Now, he is across Canada role as coordinator of the Canadian Parks Collective for innovation and leadership, a collaborator with the Canadian Mountain Network. He's also Canadian Mountain Network investigator in a study on bison reintroduction. But as you just heard, Carruthers Den Hode actually got his start as a parks interpreter. This is where he first observed the interactions of humans and wildlife. As an interpreter, as an educator, whether it was with adults who were coming out to the parks for their thousandth time, or whether it's kids who had, you know, this is their first time out of the city, being in that education role meant you got to really help shape the way people saw their time in nature and how they saw the wildlife they may or may not encounter. And actually, probably the most significant thing in that time was realizing how few people actually did see wildlife. And and yet they would think, oh, I can't go around that corner. There's going to be a bear there. And this really neat conversation occurred where you could say, it's not just about seeing a bear. It's not just about seeing the animal. What did the animal leave behind? Or, you know, can you look at footprints? Can you look at the scat? Or what does this place offer the animal that tells you this is their habitat? And for me, it was almost more exciting to get people super excited about, hey, there's a bunch of buffalo berry here. What does that tell us? Why is it here? Well, there's because there's a trail here and the trail, you know, encouraged sunlight to grow and now there's more buffalo berries. So when we close the trail, it's because this is such a great place for bears and it's because we made this great habitat for the berries. So... It kind of became this really neat conversation that wasn't about what people thought it was going to be about. So you'd say, oh, we're doing a program about bears. And the next thing you know, they're singing a song about berries. Right. And, and it always was just a really neat, like I say, opportunity to shape how people saw wildlife uh, and, and maybe see, a, see them opening their mind to not see them as just a scary thing or dramatic and to appreciate all the things that were out there that made it possible for us to have bears possible for us to have all these great animals. It's in appreciating a park or any natural space, but certainly in parks, appreciating that if if you didn't have the whole park, if you didn't have the, the 
biologists and the ecologists who are creating programs to maintain the species, if you didn't have the rules, if you didn't have the policies that prevented things from being developed in a particular way, you wouldn't have bears or you wouldn't have those wildlife. So it's sort of helping people see the whole system that really makes it possible for them to appreciate wildlife. How are these various uses balanced when it comes to human-wildlife coexistence? Because I imagine it's quite a balancing act. Do you view it as there's always going to be winners and there's going to be losers? Or how do you approach it in a way that everybody from all those interests can actually have their needs? Any park system has to consider community partners, indigenous partners, recreationalists, the wildlife needs, industry. And the really important thing about parks is to make that a conversation to say this is a place where we actually need all those partners to come together. And when it comes to wildlife interactions or wildlife relationships, it's no different than community relationships. It's no different than industry relationships. And you have to figure out what each player values, what they're looking for, what they need if you're talking about the wildlife. So in any park and any protected area that I've been working with and the leaders that I've been able to meet across Canada, that's where they start is how do we how do we talk to everybody about so they all understand what's necessary here? Like, what's it going to take to protect wildlife? You could focus on every single specific species, and each one of them is going to have a different approach you need to take to protect them, and different ways you can succeed and different ways you can fail, and different things you need to learn and different things you can appreciate about them. But if you take a step back, this idea of connecting people to nature through parks is kind of crosses all of those. So if you can actually say, well, yes, we want to manage what we do so that bears are safe and people are safe when they're in bears' habitat, that all still comes from the perspective of how do we reconnect people with nature in a respectful way. So when they're in there, they're making choices that that are in the best interest of nature, which is in their best interest so that they still have this place that they love. Right. So at the end of the day, all those interests should be aligning in a sense. Yeah, and they feed each other. Get that core down of appreciating and respecting nature. That can be then used to help influence the decisions about, okay, hey, you're a, re- you're a group that wants to have an event. We don't want you to have it here because this is where the bears are looking for their buffalo berries. We would like you to have it over here because it's a better place and you're more likely to have that group willing to go with you if they can see the reason you're asking them. How do you guys measure maybe the positive interactions and coexistence that are going on as a result of what you do? In my career, it was certainly, are you seeing pro-environmental behaviors, right? Are you seeing people make noise on the trail? Are you seeing them carry bear spray? Are you seeing them attending programs? Like you can measure a lot of Mm -hmm. success that way. Are people behaving in a way that shows that they're respecting wildlife, even just on a very practical level? On the broader level, and and now that I get to have this privilege of being in this pan-Canadian role, the success is, are people not just seeing these as negatives, but seeing the opportunity for parks to be a place where we talk about human-wildlife relationships, human-wildlife interaction, not just conflict, uh, not, you know, we've moved a long way from the idea of a problem bear and really recognizing humans' role there. And if we can look at the parks and protected areas, people manage and say, look, how can we be inclusive of this conversation and say, we're not just preventing encounters with wildlife by creating a park. We're creating all the conditions that make it possible for those wildlife to exist. So how do we tell that story and make sure people understand it and understand their own role in it? So another aspect of thinking of measuring success, and it's a nice one because I think it gets you beyond this idea of negatives and positives or winners and losers, is the opportunity that the Canadian Parks Collective 
has to work with researchers and academics and connect them with parks practitioners. And we're really trying to build that capacity for research collaboration and knowledge mobilization and bringing that research piece into this realm. It's not new, but getting really good at taking that knowledge, taking the research, taking the publications and getting it to the interpreters and the, the officers and the planners and the people managing parks and protected areas is an exciting opportunity because then the measurement is, it's more rigorous, it's based on scholarship, it's based on coming up with good studies that measure things like how many times does a wildlife that's got a radio collar on it or a GPS collar interact with a person carrying a track stick. You can overlay those maps and see are bears moving differently because there's people around? And for me, I think what's exciting is this collaboration, this opportunity to say, let's really get practical uh, questions from the parks community into the hands of academics who definitely want to continue doing research of impact. And then I think that gets into the sense of measuring success that's not over-dramatized and it's not binary and it's more about that bigger picture of how do we do a good job. Is there anything in sort of the span of your career that stands out to you as, you know, that was maybe for you personally, the pinnacle of human wildlife interaction? I've had the opportunity to encounter evidence of wild animals, see them, see what they've left behind. And it really has shown me the privilege I've had to be in those places. Uh, to me, my park's career put me in places where I could see firsthand and experience firsthand the power of connecting with wild spaces and with wildlife and with nature. And that's informed, I think, and I hope uh, continues to inform the work I do is to remove barriers for other people to have those kinds of experiences. Nothing convinces people to care about nature than those kinds of really powerful experiences. At the same time, it's been as simple as going for a ski with my kids and we'll stop for an hour and watch woodpeckers. And you watch them going up and down the, the deadfall and, and hear them drumming back and forth. You know, we're fortunate enough to live in a place with lots of birds, with foxes that hunt for mice in our yard. For me, the most powerful realization was that it's not just about the keystone species. If you can get people to appreciate those smaller, underappreciated wild things, it happens more often. And so it's easier to reconnect people on a more regular basis because they're not just holding out for that dramatic grizzly bear encounter across the meadow with the sun setting behind it. It's super exciting to watch a squirrel build its midden or it's super exciting to watch, you know, the first crocus come out at the beginning of the spring. And that's all human-wildlife interaction. It's all about the incredible connection that you can have and you can foster by giving people a chance to fall in love with life to see the natural world, to experience the natural world, and to get that deep sense of connection that comes out of it. That was Don Carruthers Den Hode, Senior Fellow Manager with Canadian Parks Collective for Innovation and Leadership and Canadian Mountain Network Investigator. I'm Blaise Kemna, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. It's interesting to me how much of healthy human wildlife coexistence seems to come from a deep appreciation for nature. That by appreciating the less flashy creatures, parks can actually begin to make very practical decisions, like where to put a trail. 
But Carruthers Den Hode also talked about all the research that goes on behind the scenes. Because, of course, before making decisions, you need actual information to base them on. That's where people like Marco Festa Bianchette come in. He's a professor of biology at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec. His publications are cited about 1,400 times per year. He's also the principal investigator for a long-term Canadian mountain network study on mountain ungulate conservation. I called Bianquette on Skype to learn about human wildlife coexistence from his wealth of research experience in the Rockies. Uh, the research in the Rockies is long-term studies on marked individuals. So I used to work with two populations of bighorn sheep and one of mountain goats. Now I'm working with just one population of bighorn sheep and I have a former student who's continuing the study on mountain goats. And essentially they're based on having everybody in the population marked, uh, ideally from the year they're born. So we know what their mother is, we use uh, DNA analysis to identify what the father is. So we have very precise data on survival, reproductive success, uh, growth of the horns, uh, growth of uh, body mass. And then we can see what factors in the environment, in the population and uh, in the management, uh, meaning hunting, affect uh, those characters. So when you say mark, that would be collars, is that correct? Collars, uh, visual collars or tags in their ears. Something that allows us to tell from a distance, so that's number 62. As researchers, how do you responsibly manage the interactions you have with these animals? Well, clearly, you don't want your study animal to behave in ways that are differently from natural because you're studying them. So it's a very different take for bacon sheep and mountain goats. Mountain goats are very sensitive, so uh, we crop them as little as we can. And one thing that we developed is a system with uh, platform scales where we can weigh these animals without having to catch them. Uh, both bighorn sheep and mountain goats are very much attracted by salt, like most other ungulates. And so we have a system with these uh, platform scales that by strategically placing the block of salt, the goat will hop on the scale and we get to weigh without having uh, to catch it. Bighorn sheep, we use a corral trap where these animals are habituated to going into the trap again with salt since the year that they're born. And so they're captured multiple times over the summer and they're very habituated to it. Of course, once they're away from the trap, then they behave like wild animals and we're very careful not to disturb them. Now, would you be able to speak to maybe any other ways you observe the impacts of human and wildlife interaction on bighorn sheep and mountain goats? Well, the main, obviously, for both of these species, the main uh, thing that you see is habitat destruction and uh, the impacts of uh, mostly roads uh, that can cut off uh, seasonal ranges. And uh, we have an increase in network of roads in the Canadian Rockies on both Alberta and British Columbia, they started to happen also in the territories. And clearly that has a lot of very negative consequences. It, produ it produces disturbance for uh, the wild sheep and goat. It provides better access to people who want to hunt them legally or illegally. And uh, it uh, also allows access to the high country to uh, all-terrain vehicles. And that is an increasing uh, problem that I'm definitely seeing in, uh, in Alberta, places where all-terrain vehicles go, both uh, quads and in winter skidoos. And you're looking at two major negative impacts. One is the direct harassment. Uh, you see people in all-terrain vehicles chasing after mountain sheep or mountain goats. And the other is the erosion. Alpine terrain is very fragile. And if you drive over it with a quad and then someone sees your tracks and drives over, very pretty soon you start having uh, ruts and you get erosion and the soil just washes away. Certainly roads in general and access to the alpine by all-terrain vehicle 
are an increasing problem. And it's particularly a problem in the Alpine, in the Tundra, because once you get up there, it in many areas is flat and, you know, an all-terrain vehicle or a skidoo can go just about anywhere. Sorry, just to back up a little bit then, in terms of how the roads affect bighorn sheep and mountain goats, can you tell me a little bit more about what their natural habitat migration would look like if those weren't there? Well, the natural habitat involves seasonal ranges. So typically they're up in the alpine during summer to take advantage of the high quality vegetation, but they need a place where they can survive the winter. And for a mountain goats, that is typically very steep cliffs where the snow falls off. For a bighorn sheep, it can be also high tundra that is windswept and the wind takes away the snow, but often it's lower elevation, uh, south-facing slopes in Alberta, particularly in the Chinook country where the Chinook uh, melt the snow. And uh, these areas, again, tend to be very uh, accessible. And uh, with an increasing number of roads, then you got more people going in. Uh, the other thing you get is people with dogs. And sheep are just terrorized of domestic dogs because they cannot tell them apart from uh, wolves. Mm. And uh, eventually get a real risk that they just abandon uh, the habitat. Plus, they get harassed by you know, dogs chasing after them and people chasing after them with quads or, uh, or skidoos. But uh, in addition to that, the road, you know, if there's fences along the road that, well, the sheep cannot can no longer uh, cross. They'll also feed uh, at times uh, on the on the right of way, and that obviously increases the probability of uh, road kills. So as far as this issue is concerned, then, what might you see as potential solutions for these species? Oh, the solutions are clear, and we should not allow people with ATV to go wherever they want. And there have been efforts made in both provinces to restrict uh, all-terrain vehicle to specific trails, not to let them go into the Alpine, uh, same with skidoos. But the enforcement tends to be uh, either very weak or totally lacking. So uh, you get people essentially going whatever they want outside the national park. Clearly, in the national parks, enforcement is much more uh, serious. Maybe I'll get you to speak a little bit more on the hunting side of things. Well, uh, my experience is mostly in Alberta and British Columbia. And uh, for mountain goats, the hunt in Alberta is very, very minimal. Uh, mountain goats can tolerate it very tiny, talk about maybe 1% level of harvest. So there's increasing concern in British Columbia about numbers declining, possibly because of overhunting. And in Alberta, there's a very, very small number of permits, but essentially is a very, very minor harvest of, uh, of mountain goat. Big work sheep are considered a, a trophy species. And they're uh, something uh, that I think is very important that my work and that of my associate research student has shown is that particularly in Alberta, uh, because they've been managed for uh, up to five or six sheep generation under a very strict definition of uh, what ram can be shot and what cannot, which is based on the degree of horn curl. And there's no quota. Anybody in Alberta can buy a permit. Uh, that has led to a natural evolutionary change so that the horns are now probably about two or three centimeters smaller than they were uh, 40 or 50 years ago. So a lot of biologists in the government are, uh, have taken these results and have tried to convince the government to change. Uh, the regulations so far they've been unsuccessful, but clearly most wildlife biologists in Alberta have understood that this is, this is a problem. So other than the evolutionary impact, um, I would say that hunt for both species in Alberta and British Columbia is quite well managed. If I understood correctly then, over the years when they were being perhaps overhunted, they actually adapted and their horns were getting smaller. That's correct? I wouldn't call it an adaptation and the hunt is still continuing under the same criteria. But what we're seeing, for example, is that if you look at 20, 25 years ago, a lot of the rams that were being shot were age four and five. And now the four and five-year-olds are essentially uh, 
very, very few of them, their horns reach that, that legal definition. I guess you could say it's just a, perhaps an adaptation to, uh, to the hunt, but it's an artificial impact on the, the revolution, and it's definitely something that we should be trying to avoid. As I was saying, Alberta, the wildlife biologists have certainly pressed for changes in regulation, but uh, the government refused it. Are there any positive things you've seen or trends as it relates to the impacts of human-wildlife interaction, particularly bighorn sheep and mountain goats? No, I can't really say that. I think, if anything, it's, uh, it's getting worse. I mean, what gives me hope is that people love these animals. That was Marco Festa Bianchet, professor of biology at Sherbrooke University and Canadian Mountain Network researcher. When you think about it, the way scientists conduct their research is a form of human-wildlife coexistence in itself, and the care they take throughout the process is based in deep respect for nature. I'm Blaise Kemna, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. As Bianquette said at the end of our discussion, people love animals. But is making a difference in human-wildlife coexistence exclusive to researchers and professionals? Not necessarily. For example, the Mistakis Institute is a conservation organization that studies human-wildlife coexistence. They engage everyday people in something called citizen science, where regular people gather data that informs research. I sat down with Executive Director Dana Duke at her Mount Royal University office in Calgary. We talked about citizen science and why human-wildlife coexistence is a key area within their research. So we recognize that humans and wildlife share the landscape, and there are certain areas where, in sharing the landscape, there can be conflict. And that can have negative impacts on wildlife, and it can have negative impacts on humans. And so at Mustakas, we try to develop different tools and strategies and solutions so that humans and wildlife can coexist on the landscape. So I saw your website says part of this process of improving coexistence is through determining wildlife needs, assessing human impacts to wildlife habitat, and exploring adaptive management. Can you walk me through each one of those steps and break down what each of those means? Determining wildlife needs. So um, a big one for us is we look at how wildlife move through the landscape. We recognize that there's a number of species that are wide-ranging, and those include species like elk and deer and grizzly bear and wolves and cougars. They have they have large home ranges, and, and or they have to access different habitat. In the course of doing that, they often have to move through human dominated landscapes. And so we look at how wildlife are moving and what their movement needs are. And one of the areas we focus on at Mastakis is how they're moving across transportation corridors. And so if you look at our landscape, um, it's fragmented by roads. And those roads cause a barrier for wildlife. They cause a barrier in that, one, they cause direct mortality, but they can also isolate wildlife, that some wildlife don't want to travel busy roads. And so we look at how wildlife are crossing those roads, where they cross them successfully, and where they get killed on the road. There are a number of ways we can facilitate getting wildlife moving across roads, and that's through highway mitigations that include 
wildlife overpasses, wildlife underpasses and fencing. But it's really important that we understand where best to put those highway mitigations. And that includes looking at both where wildlife are getting hit on the road, but also where the best movement for them in accessing habitat on either side of the road is. And so at Mastakas, we undertake studies to determine connectivity needs for wildlife, how they're moving through the landscape so that we can start to identify those places to mitigate those impacts to wildlife, which is mortality on the roads. Um, in order to look at the impacts of um, highway mitigation, there's an example of that that we've been working on a number of years down along Highway 3 in southern Alberta, where the highway was mitigated to prevent bighorn sheep from getting onto the highway. And so fencing with underpasses and jump outs was put in. And so in order to monitor the success, we looked, we monitored how sheep along the highway and other wildlife prior to the mitigation, but also after. And we actually use citizen science in that we engage citizens in the community to monitor wildlife adjacent to the highway. And so these citizens would go out and walk transects perpendicular to the highway because in addition to we want to know if mortality is decreasing along the highway because of mitigation, often wildlife get hit by vehicles and they don't die right on the side of the road but they will often wander off and we wanted to get a better sense of how often are those wildlife wandering off adjacent to the highway and so these citizen scientists would walk transects perpendicular to the highway so that we they could be part of the monitoring so we could assess prior to the mitigation and then look at a, a period of time after the mitigation and compare those time periods. Why is it important for citizens to actually be involved in what you guys are doing? So we do a lot of citizen science at Mastakas, and we see citizen science as a really valuable tool for two different reasons, and it's really this combination of getting scientific data that's needed. There's often a real dearth of data needed to answer some of these conservation challenges, but there's also a real need to engage citizens in conservation and in conservation solutions. And so citizen science allows you to gather data, but it also allows you to engage people. And so we look for opportunities where it's appropriate for citizens to be collecting certain types of data. And we develop and design and implement citizen science programs for citizens to be collecting scientific data. So as citizens, tourists, mountain users sort of in general, how can we practically help to improve wildlife and human interactions? Well, I think it's a big challenge, and I think there's a lot of different things we can be doing. One is that, like we touched on earlier, is we need to assess what wildlife needs are. And I think we're challenged a lot of this, I think, is we often defer to how we manage wildlife, but I think a big part of the solution is how we manage humans. We have this problem of increasing humans on the landscape, whether that's increasing human developments or increasing agricultural use or recreation, we're seeing more and more people on the landscape in certain areas and particularly in mountainous environments where people are attracted because of the the different attractions in the mountains for, for recreation, for the scenic values that people come to the mountains for. And so I think we're, we're challenged more and more about how humans use the landscape to reduce conflict. And so I think we have to start thinking about, you know, as humans recreate and access different areas, is what can we be doing so that we can provide security and movement opportunities for wildlife to reduce conflict. Right. Now, I guess this may be implicit in your actual vision, but is this something that you think is possible that we can both share the landscape with sort of these increasing numbers and increasing interactions? I do think it's possible. I think it's going to take a lot of outreach and education of people so that people understand what the issue is. I think ultimately people value wildlife and value 
having wildlife on the landscape. And it means that we'll probably have to alter human behaviors in terms of where people can go when. But I think with a lot of communication and outreach and education with people that there's lots of strategies that can be used to achieve that. Final question, would you say you've seen an increased interest in the work you guys do? I think we're seeing, I'm not necessarily an increase in interest in the work we do. I think there's an increase, yes, need for the work that Mustaka's undertakes in terms of there's more and more need for us to come up with innovative solutions to some of these big conservation challenges. And now you know, if ever you have some spare time, you could actually help with a research project. Whether you're a professional or not, gathering data is something you can actually be a part of. And just think, if you decided to gather data, your work, however small, feeds information to researchers just like Bianquette. Then, researchers like him inform the decisions that parks management make. While human-wildlife coexistence has its challenges, there are many people who are hard at work to make it work. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast. I'm Blaise Kemna. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in partnership with Mount Royal University Journalism. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you podcast to enjoy our latest episodes and updates. You can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.